Artificial intelligence is here. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Daniel Lopez. This is the AI Education Conversation, where we explore the opportunities, risks, and the impacts of AI across education. Let's jump in. What's up, everyone? I hope you've had a great week. We've spent a lot of time talking about how AI can improve the lives of educators in a conventional classroom sense by doing things like lesson plan generation, being a teaching assistant, other things that are some, uh, intended to be some time hacks and really personalize the conventional classroom experience. From my perspective, though, I think it's also really important that we're exploring use cases of AI that don't just make education 10% better, 1% better. I'm looking for things that actually can flip the script entirely and help us to reimagine the educational experience for our young people today from the ground up. In today's episode, I was really excited to talk with the manufacturing millennial himself, Jake Hall. Jake has built a huge following on social media by shedding light on the many cool, innovative automations happening in the manufacturing sector. Really cool things such as machines that use AI and other manufacturing technology to automatically pick up trash in a park, machines that can automatically bake cookies, and other machines that improve so many facets of our everyday life. Jake really reminds us that manufacturing is awesome and that so many opportunities exist in this sector. Before we jump into my conversation with Jake, as always, let's jump into a few updates in AI. Starting first with some updates related to AI and politics. Here in the United States, the Federal uh, Election Commission, the FEC, has moved closer to potentially regulating AI content and political ads. After voting today to open a petition for public comment, the process now lead, could lead to new rules on AI use in campaigns by the end of this year. With the 2024 presidential election nearing, efforts are really focused on creating guidelines before political campaigns further adopt AI. This petition was publicly filed by an organization called Public Citizen, which is a consumer advocacy group that believes there is an urgent need to regulate deepfake AIs and other deceptive AI uses in election ads. This past Thursday, the six-member FEC actually voted unanimously to consider the group's amended petition, uh, which came after a previously blocked vote. After the petition reaches the federal register, there's going to be a 60-day period for public comments. So they're in a process right now to explore what exactly guidelines or potential regulation is going to look like as we consider leveraging AI content and political ads. Now, as a little bit of context for this, in case you're not totally scrubbed into this, I would also really encourage uh, listening to a prior episode I did uh, titled Pope Francis in a Puffer Jacket, which really highlights and explores the deep fake uh, challenge here. At a high level, the challenge that exists is AI is very, very good now at developing images, audio, and video that looks very realistic, right? And so as you can imagine, there's a lot of implication in a political election where opponents may be uh, generating derogatory ads with fake content using artificial intelligence that a consumer, a voter may look, may view, and that may influence what way they vote for something that never, never happened. So it can have very big implications on potential elections that are out there. As, and, and there's already precedence for some of this happening. In April, the Republican National Committee actually has already aired uh, an AI-generated video ad. That ad uh, attacked President Joe Biden. Um, the 30-second ad, what it depicted, and if you have a chance to, and I'll, I'll post this on the, the chat as well, um, our Twitter account, 
the 32nd ad depicted a dystopian future where there's like this Chinese invasion of Taiwan that takes place. There's an economic collapse and there's a lot of image dedicated to that. And again, none of this actually took place. That's not the only ad that has happened. In June, there was a pro-Ron DeSantis super PAC that released a TV ad attacking former President Trump using an AI-generated version of Trump's voice, right? So again, from my perspective, I'm really concerned with using AI for this use case. I don't think it's a good thing for us to be able to leverage AI, but the challenge is, is again, how do you regulate it? How do you ensure as everybody is playing on fair rules? Um, I think it's a very challenging question that exists, and there's a lot of conversations that still need to happen regarding to what extent we're using AI and to what extent, it's again, it can be used for very predatory aspects, such as being used in election campaigns to influence voters. Let's turn to some good news, because there's also a lot of good news as well. Um, Cal Fire, in partnership with the University of Calif uh, California, San Diego, they've rolled out the Alert California AI program, which uses cameras and AI to spot wildfires. Since its launch in July, the program has already detected at least one wildfire in its early stages. Locate, located in the Cleveland National Forest near San Diego, the fire was controlled within 45 minutes during the early morning. At a high level, the way the program works is it uses AI visual detection to spot abnormalities in feeds of over 1,360-degree rotating cameras. It automatically alerts emergency services to check if there's a fire and if action is needed. The public can view a grid of remote live camera views from the program on its, on its website as well. So if you're curious to see what the cameras look like, how uh, the AI is able to do that, you can check that as well. Use cases like this for AI visual detection really excite me. Um, I think we spent a lot of time talking about large language models and the value of having it in the classroom, but as you know, many of the places in the regions across the world are dealing with wildfires. I lived in California for a long time, and wildfires are no joke. I know that we have many uh, listeners in Australia who've experienced this firsthand, some in Canada who've experienced this as well. So having technology like this, which hopefully allows us to navigate the really uh, voracious wildfires that are going to take place with the effects of climate change, really, really allow us to hopefully get ahead of these things or, or get right on these wildfires right as they're starting to happen before they really spread and are consuming acres and acres of land and then they're really hard to take out. So I'm really excited about that. If you're interested in exploring some other AI visual detection use cases, there was an episode I did a while ago around preventing school shootings. Uh, there's a company um, there that we highlight in the episode that uh, does a lot there with visual detection AI technology as well. We really uh, encourage you to listen to that episode if this is something that you're interested in learning more about. Now, just like with anything else, visual detection, good and bad, right? There can be some challenges there. There can be some use cases around facial recognition that could be problematic. But when we're thinking about the potential of this technology, really some of the good that it can do, I'm really excited that we're finding and identifying really cool ways to use it, such as how Cal Fire is using it in this case. Let's talk about another way that uh, big companies are using AI-guided technology as well. So Google and American Airlines, they conducted an experiment recently using AI-guided altitude adjustments for flights, reducing aircraft contrails by 54%, uh, and something that I did know, which is apparently aircraft contrails uh, contribute to global warming, which is really the reason why they were focused on reducing those contrails. So first and foremost, what's a contrail? If you didn't know this, this wasn't something I, I knew uh, either other words prior. When you see those airplanes going into the air, sometimes you'll see that they have that big white uh, streak of just like smoke or it looks like you know fuel or whatever it looks like going right behind them. Those contrails, though, they, those happen because when, the, when an engine is producing some soot, 
from just, you know, the residue left behind from the engine. If the airplane is going through a patch of the air that has a little bit of humidity, which means there's extra water in that air, that water in the humid air plus the soot creates that contrail. And that, that, that contrail, along with other um, just aspects of aviation, actually contribute 3.5% of global heating emissions uh, you know, to global warming annually. So there has been a little bit of an emphasis to trying to determine how aviation can reduce its carbon or its uh, you know, global heating footprint here. Um, and they have been able to identify, pilots in particular, are able to use these artificial intelligent models to choose different altitudes. Uh, to be able to reduce these contrails. So in instances where they know they're about to have a contrail or they're experiencing one currently, they're able to use these predict these AI models, uh, allows them to reduce or increase their altitude and to uh, be able to navigate this. So again, another use case that just really excites me. I think we've spent a lot of time talking about use cases here related to um, generative AI things such as creating lesson plans, you know, modifying homework assignments, creating essays. But I also want to expand our thinking a little bit. Today's episode is really focused on expanding our thinking about how AI can really help humanity in a very broad sense. And it's not all uh, about generative AI, right? There's a lot of other use cases and things that we could be using uh, to artificial intelligence for. Um, and that, that I think is a perfect segue into this really great conversation I had today with the manu- uh, manufacturing millennial himself, Jay Call. You know, after my conversation with Jake, I really left like with my mind firing on all cylinders about the opportunity that AI brings to change the narrative on what we should be teaching in schools. Um, you know, if AI does actually truly disrupt, to a certain extent it already has, but let's assume that it, it we continue down this trajectory. If AI continues to truly disrupt white-collar jobs by automating communication in seconds, right, a lot of these things that folks who are just graduating with a four-year college degree they're getting these entry-level white-collar jobs. And a, a lot of these generative AI models right now are actually showing that they can take on some of those, those tasks, right? And so companies are looking at this, and we're seeing this disruption. I think what this signals to us in the education sector is, well, if it's disrupting these white-collar industries, shouldn't this mean that we now need to expose our young people to new opportunities in the workforce that they're going to be a part of, right? If, if these jobs potentially are at risk of being extinct by the time they graduate from high school, if they decide to go to college or if they go through a, a different post-secondary institution, what else exists out there, right? Now, there's obviously a tension that exists there, right? The tension there is that by many accounts, the United States evolved from a manufacturing economy, right, to this like data information economy in the last couple of decades, right? And that's kind of the, the strategic advantage that we've had across the world uh, relative to other countries is that we're no longer the, ma- the quote-unquote manufacturing economy, right? We are the data and information economy. But that being said, what Jake really had had pushed me in thinking about in this conversation, and and I think what we'll uh, continue to learn more about is, well, if AI and automation continues to supercharge manufacturing sectors, I wonder if if there's going to be any type of manufacturing revival, especially as with artificial intelligence, with automation, things such as being able to produce microprocessors, chips, GPUs, things like that, all of those things become really important. Um, and you know, manufacturing plays a big role in that. So I, again, I'm, it's making me think: How is our economy going to continue to evolve? How is the job landscape going to continue to evolve with the with these tools? With the way technology continues to change society, I always grounded in the classroom, though, right? And thinking about what schools need to look like and what schools hopefully can look like. And I think beyond this question, it's also making me think about how important it is that the classroom of the future not just emphasize skills that 
prioritize conventional academics, right? The math, the science, the English, the history, you know, being able to go through that core model, you know, spending 12 years of your life here in the United States doing that, that's all great. But that being said, there's so many other contents, there's so many other subjects, so many other questions that we could be pushing students to explore beyond just those four contents. And it's really, really important. This is such a critical time for us to really evaluate and ask ourselves, are the subjects that we've actually chosen to teach our young people, are these really the most important subjects with their precious time that we could be teaching them? The other thing I'm also thinking about is so much of the current you know, status quo classroom benefits auditory and visual learners. It doesn't actually benefit tactile and kinesthetic learners, right? We, we've, heard, we've all heard experiences. If any educator has listening to this, you know, and we've heard the stories of students who are getting sent to, you know, the, the principal's office and being diagnosed with ADHD or, you know, getting in trouble because they're standing up in class or they just have a lot of energy and they just won't sit there and listen to teacher talk for 50 minutes. It's because they're kids and they don't want to listen to that, right? They want to be able to move. They want to be able to play stuff with their hands. And those are strengths. And there's actually a lot of uh, resources. There's a lot of vocations of value. There's a lot of really important questions to be answered for young people who possess these traits where they they have very, very strong tactile and kinesthetic uh, aptitudes. And it's very important that we nurture that instead of encouraging them to say there's only one way to learn, which is you got to sit at the desk, you got to listen, and then you got to regurgitate back everything that we've talked about, right? So my hope is that through conversations like the one I'm having today with Jake, through continuing to explore the potential of AI, we can really flip the script on the classroom and ensure that we are embracing all of the the young people that are in our education system and really have opportunities for them to learn and to be celebrated for their strengths as well. That being said, uh, you know, in addition to this, I think there's also an opportunity here to teach critical life skills. You know, I will say personally that you know, as a millennial, and we talk a little bit about this in the episode today with Jake. You know, from my experience, when I was when I was in the K to twelve, I feel like so much of it was this this uh, this ethos of like you either go to college or you're going to work at McDonald's and be a failure. I feel like that was a lot of the like messaging that I got from my educational experience around the career trajectories out of, that were out there. And what I love about the way that schools are starting to evolve with things such as early college programs, a reemphasis on career and technical education here in the United States, being able to have conversations with folks like uh, Jake. That's slowly starting to change, and we're starting to have more dialogue around what exactly it is that we define as success beyond uh, high school graduation. So, but that being said, we really owe it to ourselves to ensure that we're not just having conversations about the one percent, right? Yeah, being able to do the lesson plans, being able to you know save time there—that's great. It's important. I think we need to continue to get better at that. But my goal with learning and exploring AI is not that we're just getting 1% better. Let's flip the script. Let's actually make this entire system better. Let's really help young people. Let's let's prepare our youth to be able to solve some of humanity's biggest problems in a way that we haven't done before because we continue to use the playbook from the last 200 years. Let's really do this thing, right? So that's what I'm really excited about, continuing to reimagine education, not just living in that incremental. So let me know what you think about today's conversation. As always, I'm on at the AI Ed Combo on Twitter. And uh, just a quick reminder, as we talk about AI, humans are the heart of AI education. I'll see you all next week. Jake Hall, welcome to the AI education conversation. I'm really excited to have you. Daniel, it's, uh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So, I, I mean, I, I'd love to just kind of jump on in. And I, I think uh, I really have been um, very engaged by the content that you create. And I know that on social media, you go by... Uh, this this moniker, if you will, uh, the manufacturing millennial. 
and yeah. you have a pretty big social media presence. So I'm just curious, how'd you end up here? How, how'd you end up as the manufacturing millennial? Yeah, no, it's it's great to be here. And yeah, I, I mean, the manufacturing millennial, the, the name idea came around in like 2019 when I was sitting at a manufacturing conference and there's probably like 300 or 400 people in the room. And I was looking across the room and I would say I was the only person there under the age of 40 that was attending this event and said, well, wait a second, where's our younger generation that's supposedly the future of manufacturing yet the future generation is attending the events that all of the leadership and changes and, and future strategies taking place at. Um, and so that's where I became yeah. an apologetic millennial of, of manufacturing saying, you know, I'm a young kid. I have a lot to learn, but um, I want to be a part of it. My, my journey into manufacturing started, oh gosh, um, 12 years before that. When I was a, a sophomore in high school, I went to and got my first manufacturing job working for a custom machine builder systems integrator that did robotics and automation. I did the grunt work. I, I swept the floor. I cleaned the, the CNCs and the manual mills. I, I wiped down the welded parts with acetone and grinded the burrs and, and did a lot of the, the grunt work. Uh, but I, I really enjoyed it because I learned a lot. There was a lot of great mentors that that taught me a lot of really fun things on like how to tap a hole, how to wire a panel, how to you know. And it was just, it was a great experience. Um, after that, went to college. I got a manufacturing engineering degree and biomedical engineering degree. And after that, stepped right into the world of automation sales. So I did a lot of um, vision systems, robotics, motion control, PLCs a lot of the equipment that goes on on custom automation equipment. And, um, you know, the, the the journey of the manufacturing millennial really took off in, in 2020 when the pandemic, you know, really, really started and we were told to work from home. And I thought, well, if I'm working from home, I can't go see people in, pe- in person anymore. So I might as well start making content online and hopefully they'll see it that way instead of just the traditional, you know, either email or phone call or, trying to trying to get a, a guy to hop on a zoom call um and it, it, the, the the content resonated with a, a, a lot of audiences a lot more audience than uh what was you know what i was connected with at the time and fast forward a, a few years later now i have a a good following on, on social media across multiple platforms where i just love advocating manufacturing automation skilled trades and and what these future industries can offer the next generation yeah, definitely. No, I appreciate that. I think um, the the story you you share of you f- feeling like you were the youngest person in the room sitting in this this auditorium, if you will, at this conference, I think really resonates. I know for me, growing up, and you know, I'm a millennial as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, when I was in high school, and I know that you you share this statistic on on your website just around the fact that in general, when we talk about manufacturing in the workforce, the 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 large like demographic of folks who are in the manufacturing field are getting older. Right. Yeah. And so uh, you had mentioned on your website that, you know, 20 years ago, the number of workers in manufacturing over 50 was about 14%, but now it's like covering close to 26%. And mm-hmm. um, really what that's, you know, suggests is that there's not a lot of young people, right. Not a lot of young, young millennials, right. Getting into this field and replacing some of those older workers. And I, and I, I don't know if you have, I'd love to just kind of, um, you know, maybe speculate a little bit on that, but I would say from my perspective as somebody who 
is a millennial as well as like is very um, attached to this college access field. Uh, and again, I'm really curious as well to hear just like how, how you even entered the field of manufacturing. But I feel like growing up, I, it was very much this like binary um, two-way street when I was in school. And like mm-hmm. the advising I heard, it was very much like, well, you should be going to college. Like it's college or bus, right? It's like college or you're going to work at McDonald's or you're going to be a failure, right? Yeah. And that very much seemed to be like the ethos for a lot of the the students, like in terms of like the advising we got in my generation, which is like you either make it to a four year college or, mm-hmm. you know, and it's and it's like bad to work with your hands. I feel like a lot of these messages were some of the things that were were out there when I was like growing up and in high school. And I, I'm, I'm excited because it feels like that's that's uh, shifted a little bit now. But yeah, I'm just curious if that was like your your experience oh, as well or well, if it was different. Yeah, 100 percent. Right. You know, you, when you went in and your sophomore, junior year and you went to go meet with a guidance counselor, you know, high school. They weren't like, hey, have you thought about going to go get a skilled trades or a two-year degree or associate's degree? No, it was, here's, you know, the different universities in the area, and these are the programs that they offer, select one, and that's what you're doing after high school. Um, you know, and and it's, it's one of those things where it, it's, I would say it's it's a split fault, right? I, I, think, uh, I think our generation of millennials, and I'm hoping we can fix it for the Gen Zs, is that, you know, Right. We were told this, you go to college, you get a degree, you'll be successful and you can have the income that you want and buy a house when you want. And well, lo and behold, um, you know, you can get a you can get a college degree, but still work at McDonald's, uh, you know, which, yeah, is, uh, which, is the, which is the funny part about it. Uh, you know, and, and I think it really relates down to a, a couple of things. One is, is the degree that you're getting in college actually valuable. Um there, there. I, I would definitely say there was some some predatorial motives from the educational system on like creating degrees like English and communications and and what I would call the GED of college, the you know a business degree. <laughs> you know, it's it's like yeah, you get it, but what is that? What can you actually use it for? Getting a business degree doesn't teach you really how to run a business, in my opinion. Um, as a guy who who works for myself and all that. Um, you know, so I, I think the big thing is, is right, the average student graduating from college right now who spends over four years, it gets closer to five years now going to get a four-year degree, is going to graduate with an in-state degree of like um, $33,000 in student debt, an out-of-state public school, 43000 a private school, $63,000. And and you look at that, and then, you know, the average, um, if you were to take out the the STEM careers of, of college degrees and and what their income is it's it's extremely low it's like 30 30 40 thousand dollars um and i think we need to look at that because i am not here to say don't go get a stem degree if you if you have the 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 capability and math or science or, or engineering or you know that type of of you know brain style of thinking to go get that you're going to be great at it great go get an engineering degree i or, or, or stem degree i strongly encourage that because that's the future of of, of, of how we're working in the future. Technology makes it so life can be easier. We can do more things with less, with less time and less resources. Um, but if you're out there and you're like, well, hey, I, I don't know how to do calculus or differential equations and you know you need that to do an engineering degree. Well, maybe engineering is not for you, but may, there's still a lot of other career opportunities. You might be great with your hands. You might become a, a great electrician or an HVAC person or a CNC programmer where you can problem solve 
you can be innovative without the need for a four-year degree. I'm like, that's where I would say that that shift that we're seeing now is the trades programs for so long had this such this negative stigma of, oh, I don't want my kid to be a welder. I want my kid to be a doctor. Well, the reality that parents need to hear a lot of times, and, and this is just I, you know, um, the, the cold hard facts, well, maybe your kid's not smart enough to be a doctor. <laughs> You know, yeah. and, and maybe what you should set is the world's not fair and you should set realistic expectations of what your kid probably can do. Um, and if your kid's going to be a plumber or a welder, that's fantastic because those those professions are going to be some of the highest demanded degrees or highest demanded skills in the future, right? The average welder and that's working in manufacturing right now, somewhere between 50 to 53 to 55 years old, which represents over 50% of the working demographic of welders. So uh, you have, you have 600,000 welders and working in manufacturing right now in the U S with 50% of them being over, uh, you know, 50 years old, Well, you're going to have a massive workforce retiring in the next 10 years. It's, it's, it's terrifying. Um, and, and when people always go out and they complain, they say, well, oh my gosh, I had an electrician come into my house and get paid. I had to pay him $115 an hour to do it. Well, yeah, that's because there's a high demand for them and they're really good at their skill. You know, tell me, tell me what other, um, after, after you go and you get your journeyman and you work under a master's and, and you, and you get your, your, uh, your license, tell me what other thing you can go out there and be your own entrepreneur and get paid 115 to 120 hours to do it. That's incredible. Um, and that's the big thing that I'm pushing out there and I'm advocating to to future parents and generations is there's multiple successful career opportunities and, and roads that a person can take. Let's not say that the four-year degree is the end-all be-all of success for our future generations, but find out what other roads and avenues are going to be working. And the same thing just for general manufacturing, right? Manufacturing for so long was viewed as, and, and still is this viewed as this dark, dirty, dull, dangerous, dumb industry that, that people work in that doesn't have innovation. that doesn't have technology that all the jobs left the U S you know, back in the 1980s and nineties and, and manufacturing's no longer existed. Well, the truth of the matter is manufacturing is like a 2.3 to $2.4 trillion industry in the United States. If you were to take manufacturing and make it its own economy, it would be the seventh largest GDP in the world. It's it's a massive industry and a massive impact that we're out there. And, and I guess that's that's my goal is, is to do all these different things of making manufacturing exciting, making manufacturing fun, hopefully making it so parents can do a better job um, coaching their kids on what their, what their future um, opportunities could be. And, and kind of at the same time, how we can do a better job from an educational side, right? Going back to the the you know the education conversation that we're having here in the podcast of how we as an industry can better enable educational institutes to to prepare future generations for jobs. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think so much of what you said resonates. I think, um, especially just as it relates to like the advising standpoint for students, as as you mentioned. We're not necessarily saying college shouldn't, you know, shouldn't be an option for yep. students. Of course it is. It's it's a tremendous and amazing option. But to your point, there's oftentimes this advising being given to students who are very, very uncertain about what they want to do with their lives or they're it's just not a good fit. Right. Yeah. And 
um, you know, as you mentioned, you you may have some students who have, have historically said, well, I don't really like school, like I'm not interested. And we may try to pass them off to a college and say, well, you know, they're going to figure out their passion here. This is going to be the thing, right? <laughs> I was going to go to college for the first two years to get my, uh, what is it, my, my liberal arts degrees out of the way. Like, wow, so you're going to pay $20,000 a year to not know what you're going to do. That's, yeah, that's exactly. Sounds, that sounds it's, smart. It's a big investment, right? And then to your <laughs> point, there, there's also just like, this lifestyle uh, piece that we haven't like fully addressed yet, which is, to, you, you know, you mentioned earlier, there, there may be some students who uh, are being told that like, they're very interested in the medical field and they want to be a doctor. Part of it may be apt to do part of it though. Maybe like, they just don't want to like, you know, study that much and actually yeah. be in school for that long. Right. There's some people who are very, very talented at working with their hands and, and can actually have, have like mobility skills that just other people don't have. And we don't weigh that as much in education, right? We actually don't value as much uh, some of those like physical skills that uh, somebody can have, but in, in there's other vocations out there where that's actually a very tremendous skill set, right? To yeah. be able to uh, have some strength or to be able to be, uh, have a lot of dexterity uh, with your hands. And, and those are skills that are very valuable. And so um, I think oftentimes when students understand that you can make a living using your hands in a different way. Right. And as you said, you're still problem solving. It doesn't mean you're, you're totally not using your brain anymore, but you're using it in, in this different way. And now there's some tactile pieces and you can make a living and not have a debt that that can be a very uh, enticing option for a lot of students out there who haven't been really excited about sitting at a desk for so many hours in, in yeah. a day here. Oh, and, and, and that's, what's so exciting about it. Um, Technology is always shifting and changing how we work. And, and, and the one thing that I love um, talking about is like how millennials and Gen Zs have this expectation of what their future jobs and careers should look like. I would say arguably, arguably because of what they see on social media, right? You know, they go out there and social media says you should have this expensive car and this expensive house and you should look like this and have all this. And, and the one thing that I would say has truly hurt our generation is this false expectation of what success is, looks like. And, and, and so like, I, I always love talking when, when, when older generations say, oh yeah, everyone wants to be an influencer. Um, but I was reading, I was reading an article talking about how influencers actually have a higher risk of being replaced through AI and technology than like skilled trades jobs do or what they call as low, you know, what they call it for, from like low education jobs. I mean, cause you go out there, AI has the ability to create so much realistic content where you can make a completely fake person look like a real person that can say things, do brand deals, take pictures, make videos, say whatever they want whatever voice or style they want. And now that AI can do that, one thing is like you could do that for super cheap because AI could you could just give AI prompts and be like, hey, here's this, you know, base of what this character looks like. These are the things I want to say. This is the environment I want to look like. And now you can create whatever you want where before, you know, influencers and, and, and individuals had um, the, the, right. That was their separation from produ professional production and commercials in the industry. Well, now. AI, I think, is going to rapidly catch up. I, I watched some videos this morning actually talking about how there's AI influencers out there that people don't even realize are AI that literally have hundreds of thousands, if not almost a million followers. That's completely AI generated. That are that that's getting 
you know, brand deals. And the whole reason why influencers exist is, you know, to get brand deals with companies to be spokesmen for them. Yeah, some people don't have those deals, but at the end of the day, people are like, oh my gosh, I want to do this. Well, the only way they can do that is to get money for 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 showing off their extravagant lifestyle. Well, all of a sudden, if AI can do that. <laughs> yeah. You know. and, to your, and to your point, it's not just uh, content creation and influencing. It's, it's There's a lot of like administrative and like soft skills that oh. are falling into this a little bit. And I think to your point, for me, when, when ChatGPT and some of these things came out, I think that was probably the biggest surprise about AI, right? Because oftentimes I think the narrative that existed out there, you know, 2022 and, and prior was that if AI, as AI continues to gonna uh, continues to become automated and developed, it's gonna replace like blue collar jobs. It's gonna replace like a lot. And then, and actually, the first thing it did is is it showed that in a lot of instances for these companies, a lot of those like entry level positions where you're doing a lot of these like automated email things, yeah. condensing yeah. condensing information, yeah, uh, entry job. level white collar jobs are exactly the ones being disrupted <laughs> right now. So that yeah. was that has been by far one of the most interesting trends. Uh, I've noticed in the last few months here. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually actually one of those things. Like I, I've been, I've been this time for me. Like I've I've wanted to write an article saying AI is not going to replace blue collar. It's going to replace white collar jobs because blue collar has so much. I guess you could say experience that is needed to happen to to wrap around the person's success. A lot of time, blue collar jobs are working with your hands, where with AI. You're right. You can you can know how to do it, but the, there's a whole physical, mechanical side of dexterous jobs that there's a lot of technology that needs to happen before that can, before AI can be integrated with those dexterous jobs. Um, you you, you and the AI can tell me how I can sweat a pipe to do plumbing. And and attach a water heater. AI can tell me how to do that in ChatGPT. I can go to ChatGPT and say, "Hey, create a step by step program on how to replace a water heater," and it can do that. But can it actually? But it physically can't do that. However, I can go into ChatGPT and say, "Hey, write for me a formula and generate a graph that has this data table as information and pull out the main." key points from it you betcha can do that right now and that's yep. what those white exactly color right. entry-level jobs are doing um i mean even from a a skill set side of um programming i mean you it's amazing what ai can do in the programming side um and while it might with a manufacturing right now i'm not it might not be you know completely writing ladder logic for plcs um, we are seeing AI move robots in a way where you don't need to program a robot to do this very pre-programmed movement process where now all of a sudden we have AI that's going out there. It's finding the points in space using a vision system or a camera or an imager. And it's, it's finding those points in space and then communicating the robot and say, okay, here's your point. This is where you are now. Find a way to get there safely. And now, now that you can do modeling and simulation, um, you know, you can, you can, you can simulate your process and say, did this work? And then send it to the robot and the robot can do it. Um, and, and that's, what's, that's, what's, I find so exciting about AI is, uh, what we thought was going to be replacing a lot of these low skilled jobs. I think what we're going to find out is it's actually hitting that, that middle management market where I would argue a lot of degrees 
that going back to the beginning of the conversation, those those business, those communication, those you know English degrees, it's it's those are that's the market that I see a lot of shift happening and within AI and and that's why I go back to encouraging, hey, go become an engineer because you can be on the front side of you know robots are going to be doing more tasks in the future, but we need more jobs to integrate those robots, to handle those robots, to maintain those robots, to um, to to build custom and really cool automated equipment, um, and and we need then the, the skilled trades people then to to support our everyday lives because you know, houses aren't going to be built through ChatGPT and generative AI. At yeah. least anytime soon. Maybe, maybe not in, today. <laughs> maybe in forty or fifty years from now. Uh, but it's so hard to predict forty or fifty years ago. I mean, gosh, we you know we have this thing called you know in our in our hand called a cell phone, and this thing is even you know fifteen twenty years old. Look how look how far we've come from a uh, you know a Nokia phone to you know S twenty one Ultra that has more processing you know power than the rocket that went to the moon. <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's that crazy stuff. Yeah. There's uh, I think with, with that, maybe just to like hit on this before we, we really transition here, because I really want to start to ask you more about manufacturing AI. You've alluded to it, but like, I think you, you, in, in some of the, the points that you've brought up, you brought up, I think just this, this, such an important point around how we as a society, how we as how we can prep our young people to be prepared for the world ahead. Right. Because I think there's a currently, even still today, there's a little bit of a dichotomy ex- that continues to exist, right? Which is like, if you do, you go to college somehow, like you're a thinker. Mm-hmm. And if you don't go to college and you try to enter like more of a vocational, somehow like you're not a thinker, right? Like you're just, you're like a grunt, right? And I think yeah. what I hear you saying so sophisticatedly around just even your own experiences is like to be successful in this world that we actually don't know what it's going to look like even 10 years from now, it actually requires you to be both, right? You have to be tenacious yes. enough to and bold enough to be somebody who's actually going to like try to tackle projects with your hands because like you should use those, you have them and like mm-hmm. you can do that. And, and, and doing so requires just as much problem solving, thinking, critical, you know, critical thinking yeah. analysis as it does when, you know, to, to go to college and get some type of academic degree. Yeah. And we need to stop thinking of these things as mutually exclusive, right? There, it's, there is an opportunity here to be able to think of the tactile vocations as well as thinking as something more complex than either or. And I yeah. just want to make sure that we hit that as well. Yeah. I mean, 100%. I think, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, um, Success is defined in in multiple ways, um, and everyone has their own definition of success. I mean, what would I what I would encourage you know future generations to look at, and and even people who are who are in their thirties or forties who might not say, "Hey, I'm not happy with what I'm doing right now." Um, well, the first thing is, what are you doing to continuously learn? Like, I think that's the big thing that that so many people fail at mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. They went to high school, they went to college, they they got a degree, whatever, and they haven't spent a consistent time trying to learn new things on a continuous basis. Like that is the first set of failure. If you if you're like, it it would be it, it, it's the same ideology of I'm going out there and oh I have the yellow pages book, which means I have everyone's phone number I'm ever going to need. I'm never going to have to go out there and go and use Google because Google, even though Google can find this way, I have the yellow pages so I can just continue to do that to order my pizza. It's, it's, it's like one of those things where um, 
you need to continuously learn to be successful. I think I think so many people have this mentality that I've talked to that, oh, I got my degree and now I should immediately be entitled to have this job with this pay wage and all that stuff. Well, you might have gotten your degree 10 years ago. You know what it didn't exist 10 years ago? A ton of things. One of those being this whole entire emergence of, of Chad GPT. Even, even this idea of, um, I know so many incredibly successful people who never went to college, who just went online and watched YouTube videos mm. to learn how to program mm-hmm. themselves, to learn how to program. And it's it's like one of those things is they don't have a college degree. They, they don't have an associate's. They don't have a two-year. They don't have a four-year. But they watch YouTube videos and they learn how to program some unique, I don't know, the language. there's so many different co- programming languages. Because I'm not a programmer. But, you know, it's one of those things where they learned how to do that and they, they learn those skill sets and they're defining their own success that way. I, I think that's the big thing is um, our, our generations are failing because they don't want to continuously learn. Like that's that's one thing that that kind of resonated with what with what you said. No, totally. I, uh, I'm a big fan of YouTube University. I recently used it. I've never uh, changed some of that the headlights on my car before. So I watched a video, yeah. was able to pick it up at the local AutoZone and I figured it out. And the same with, uh, I have a brick fireplace and I've never mounted a TV on the brick before. And so I had to like learn, oh, you got to have this special kind of drill and drill. But I was like, oh, okay. So um, YouTube University is great. But to your point, folks, we need to just really encourage folks to have not just to to go use some of these tools and the technology that exists, but then you also got to have the tolerance to do it, right? You you can't say in the back of your mind like, oh, well, I can't do this, or I need a you know a technician or somebody to do it. Like you can do it. Mm-hmm. You just have to like put in some grit. You have to learn and you have to figure it out, right? And uh, you know, spend some time doing it, just like with anything else. And yeah. uh, to your point, there's this ethos that exists that like after I graduate from high school, after I graduate from college, somehow the the learning is done. And it, no, it's not. You're learning your entire life. You're always figuring things out. You're always problem solving. And I think with the YouTube, you know, university, I think it's a good transition in, in, a, in a manufacturing and technology. You know, the one thing that I think prevents so many generations or from, that the manufacturing industry does to prevent future generations from being a part of it is their fear of technology adoption. You know, with, with, with older generations who grew up with manufacturing, who graduated from high school at 18, didn't go get a four-year degree. I just went to go work for a manufacturer right away. They grew up in a very non-digital world and and saw that transition of, of making and building things. Yet, ma- a lot of manufacturers are still such a old brownfield facility. They haven't embraced a new form of technology that lasts like mm. 25 years. So if you were to go out there and you were to say, hey, we need to get new young kids, 20s and 30s, and excited about manufacturing, but haven't embraced the YouTube university means of teaching new skill sets, solving problems, doing maintenance on machines, and you're still leveraging a, a printed th- three ring binder to give, to teach people how to learn and how to fix things. What a massive like missed opportunity in terms of how you can embrace new technology. That's going to make it relatable to, to future generations. Like that's the thing that for me, just manufacturers, absolutely fail at and and the other thing that manufacturers that that fail at is better better outreach to younger generations for 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 like kids still in middle middle school and high school you know we we go out there and we talk about hey here's all the cool tech here's all the things that you can be a part of 
But I think what manufacturers really need to do is they really need to start being a lot more vocal on, we can invest in you in ways that other traditional career means of going to a two-year degree or four-year degree and paying them to do that miss. Um, At least in West Michigan here where I'm at, there are so many apprenticeship programs that kids graduating or even still in high school can be a part of. They get paid to work. They get paid to learn. And, 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 and they're, they're doing that in a way that's just so incredible. Um, yeah, I, I think so many parents probably don't even realize that those, those exist. Yeah. Um, I want to start first maybe with your initial point, because this is something that, uh, I know not too much about, and I think it's interesting to hear you talk about this. So when we're talking about manufacturing, um, I know that like on your, your page, I saw you had so many different examples of this from, you know, machines that were like automated walking through a park and just picking up trash from a park. You had machines that were um, making cookies automatically, like working and making cookies. So, so manufacturing means a lot of different things. Yeah. Um, And I, I guess like one point I heard you say is that the field as a whole, not everybody is adopting technology and really going through. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about like, you know, when you think about AI, uh, you know, the way that that technology has come into the the sector of manufacturing, like how has AI like really jumped into manufacturing? Um, and are you seeing certain sectors transform and emerge more than others? Like what opportunities are you identifying um, out there for students? Like, is it across the board manufacturing? There's so many opportunities. Or are there certain fields that are really adopting technology, really being progressive on the front here uh, with their adoption of AI? Yeah, I mean, I would say... AI can be used in a couple of different ways. One is I would call the front office and then the floor. Um, the front office, we kind of talked a little bit, right? The AI, AI, generative AI can be a massive tool for managers and people in HR and people in hiring and, and, and businesses to, to create prompts and make tedious work a lot easier. Um, and, and those exist. The other thing that I would say, generative AI or just AI in general um, can be used a lot on the floor. And there's a few things that come to mind. Like one is robotics. Um, we're seeing a lot more AI being used to leverage robotics in a new way that makes robots a lot more agile in their in the process in which they're being used. Rather it be welding, where we're leveraging AI to do really cool welding operations. Uh, we're leveraging AI to do really cool. Um, palletization, depalletization, picking. So where we're taking parts, um, going in a massive warehouse facility and, and we're, we're taking individual singulated parts out of bins. And then those are going into your boxes that are being shipped to the door for a long time. Humans had to go out there and grab, you know, that one part, take that part, put it in that box, throw a label over it. That's a lot of dexterous work. And it's, it was, it was so complicated because every part's different. Every, every pick is different. You're never going to see the exact same in the exact same location twice. Um, and, and so that's a massive impact that we're seeing that way. The other area that we're seeing is like AI is is being used a lot with robotics. I would say AI is being used a lot with like vision as well um, for vision systems, for identification, rather that be for um, like a quality control where we're looking at a product and we're seeing, was there a manufacturing process that was, there was a defect involved, like there was a burr, there was a dent, there was a scratch on a class A surface. Um, it's traditionally vision was really hard 
Uh, machine vision was really hard to detect those because a scratch would never be in a lot of times the same, you know, area twice. You could you could detect a measurement on on a part and look at its ID and OD and 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 all that stuff because it was the same area. You throw a backlight with a telecentric lens, you can easily detect that. But how do you detect something where the, the there's a defect that could happen anywhere and you don't know what it's going to look like? That's where AI and and teaching models of good parts can detect variability of bad that you've never seen before. Mm. And and I would say that's like where AI is really is making another impact as well, where you're seeing a lot of combination of, of AI impacting vision and AI impacting like robotics. Those are the big things. Now we are seeing more, I would say on, um, AI is a great tool for like DOE, you know, design of experiments um, where you would have a, a process where you need to like run a thousand iterations to see what would be the most efficient or what is the best ratio or, 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 uh, order of operations for a process. Now, all of a sudden with AI, you can run these simulations and do all this stuff at a, at a much uh, faster, lower cost rate. Um, you know, th- those are some areas that, that we're seeing in AI. You know, I think um, there's definitely a place for AI right now. I would also argue that AI is very much of a buzzword and a lot of cases as well, where you see a lot of VC companies coming from the East and West coast who are just say, Oh yeah, we're doing use We're, we're leveraging AI to do this. And um, then they go, you know, they run out of investment money four years later. <laughs> you yeah, know? totally. Uh, so it's it's one of those things where um, there's a lot of great opportunities. There's a lot of great success. We there, there's there's a ton of phenomenally successful cases which AI has been leveraged in manufacturing, and I would say there's an equal amount of cases where they failed. Yeah. And to your point, I mean, I think that resonates. I think when I when I say artificial intelligence, obviously, as you've mentioned, uh, the examples that folks might might commonly know as artificial intelligence, things such as large language models and generative AI is not uh, obviously like what you're what you're mentioning is artificial intelligence and what has been most helpful in manufacturing. You really have described kind of like that visual detection as being like one of the the strong pieces. And then, um, you know, and then to the to the other point, I, you know, I'd really encourage folks to check out your social media page because like beyond uh, artificial intelligence, as you've described, there also exists this just like this advancement in robotics and automation, which is like really transformed the field. Yeah. And it's not necessarily AI, but it has transformed the way that these industries have worked and made those jobs like significantly uh, uh, just like smoother. Right. And maybe oh, not yes. as like taxing and physically taxing. And so uh, I am also wondering, uh, you know, to that point. um so just to like, uh, I, I know that like we have to kind of like wrap up here pretty soon. I, I, I'm also wondering, um, you know, you said this earlier around there, there continues to exist kind of this chasm a little bit, right? Between schools and between um, just like companies out here who are doing a lot of great work in manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And I think that that continues to be part of the hurdle here is this hurdle around um, just like exposure. Do you, how do you think schools and districts should be preparing for like, uh, this like evolution in manufacturing, like, are there examples in the field you can point to or like any successful pipelines or practices you've seen that schools and uh, teachers can take away from this? Yeah. I, I mean, I would love for schools to get more involved with like the traditional like trades classes that once were right. You know, the shop classes that once existed that taught kids how to weld and to, you know, do plumbing and carpentering. Um, those are tough. Those are tough. There's a lot of resources that are involved. Um, 
especially when so much state and federal ma- mandation on, you know, schools, you know, kids need to have four years of science, four years of math, four years of social studies, you know, and history and economic, you know, they're, they're, they're all competing for, for kids time. Like, but the one thing that I would say, um, Schools should be doing a better job of like with extracurricular opportunities and stuff. Like U.S. First Robotics is, is something that I'm super passionate about, where there's thousands of of high schools across the U.S. and across the world, and and teams going all the way down to elementary school that are getting kids excited about robotics and programming and design and CAD. Um, those are phenomenal tools. So I mean, the first place to start, I would argue, is is it's a great established program already that there's a lot of scholarships and um, resources available to get those programs going. Like that would be one place to start. Like the other area that I would start is what are, what are local manufacturers doing to align themselves with local education, not colleges and universities, but high schools um, to say, Hey, we want to, we want kids out there to be aware of what we're doing locally in the community and what we can do to hire a high school kid to give them a summer internship to work at, at our company. I think those investments would be huge. Um, cause what I think a lot of times parents don't know where to start. Parents don't know how to get their kid in, in connected with a local manufacturer to do those things. Um, and, and, and that's the, that's the one area. I mean, so for, for my encouragement is manufacturers, their employees are going to be local. So they need to invest locally to find the future talent that's going to, that's going to help their company grow in the years to come. Definitely. Jake, thank you so much for your time today. I have so many other questions and we're definitely going to have to schedule some times in the future to reconnect as you continue to uh, kind of evolve and learn more about the field. And we continue to have the conversations here, but thank you so much for your time today. Daniel, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the AI Education Conversation. Give a follow, rate, and review wherever you listen. For all show notes and to share your thoughts on today's episode, check out the AI Edconvo on Twitter. See you next time.